Welcome to the Tolstoy Stone Podcast. I'm Garrett Ryan, and my guest today is Paolo Carafa, professor of classical archaeology at Sapienza University of Rome. Uh, professor Carafa, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Oh, well, it's my, my great pleasure. Um, professor Carafa has led excavations uh, in many parts of Rome and Italy, but I wanted to focus today on his work at the Palatine Hill, the site of the emperor's palaces and traditional birthplace of Rome. So to begin uh, with the beginning, how much do we know about Rome and the surrounding region um, around the traditional founding date of Rome uh, in the 8th century BC? Well, now we know quite a lot about what we usually call the early Rome. That is Rome around the middle of the 8th century BCE, which is, in our mind, a crucial date because that's the time when the ancient believed that the city was founded. Uh, I said now we know a lot because until 20 years ago or 30 years ago, we knew much more about the previous period, that is about the centuries spanning between the end of the 10th and the 9th, what we usually call the Iron Age. And we know a lot also about the later stage of the early city, that is between the end of the 7th century and the end of the 6th century BCE, that is the traditional period uh, when the city was ruled by kings, these annual magistrates called kings. Uh, thanks to our work, now we know much more about this 8th century Rome. Uh, we know a lot uh, because we had the privilege of uh, uncovering more than an hectare, more than an hectare and a half wide area containing mm -hmm. a number of features, which it was possible, it was not possible to imagine in, in advance. We had been, uh, we started the excavation there. My mentor, Andrea Carandini, started, I was very young by that time. Uh, he decided to work in that site because he was interested in the house of the Roman senators in the city. And we actually uncovered the remains of these houses and uh, underneath these uh, senatorial houses, we identified earlier houses of the so-called royal uh, age, but underneath these royal houses, there was a void area with a wall in the middle encircling the hill, dating around the middle of the 8th century BCE. And beneath this wall, we had the surprise of uncovering the remains of the previous settlement dating back to the Iron Age. So this void area and this wall represented a strong discontinuity in the layout of the area. This was the beginning of the story. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, as you said, until recently, it was always there, there was the traditional narratives, you know, Livy and the other ancient authors, and then not much archaeology. You know, we, we didn't know uh, how much was lately behind the ancient story. Exactly. Uh, the, the point is that uh, we know a lot of what the ancient thought about the origin of the city. But as you probably know, this was told in mythical terms. The first king was the son of a god, 
has been milked mm -hmm. by a she-wolf and uh, <laughs> he killed his twin brother and other fascinating stories like this. So it was quite impossible to assume that these stories could be reliable historical narratives. Mm -hmm. It was surely the way they remembered their very early origin of the city. They surely represent the way they reconstructed their origin. The point is how much of these stories can be compared with the real story of Rome, meaning by real the fact that it has been impressed in the earth or Rome. This is the uh, added mm -hmm. value of an archaeological excavation. For the first time, we had the possibility of reconstructing the changing landscape of a place in Rome from the 9th century BCE onwards, that is, in the crucial period when the ancient thought that Rome was born. And mm -hmm. as a matter of fact, the archaeology represented a strong discontinuity in the organization of this place. And actually, the appearance of a new landscape, which was kept as it has been shaped for the first time for many, many centuries, in some cases until the end of the Roman Empire. And this hmm. strong continuity after a sudden discontinuity indicates the relevance of this new layout in terms of new landscapes. Mm -hmm. hmm. Well, that, that, that is fascinating. So the, the, the new settlement, the one that appeared after the discontinuity, um, how much do we know about this settlement? Uh, we know quite a lot. I would say we know quite a lot because starting from the Palatine, exactly, we have been digging in the uh, one, one hectare and a half. It's a wide area, but it's a small area compared to the whole surface of the Palatine Hill, of course. And this is a narrow strip laying on the north side of the hill that is the site looking towards the Roman Forum and the so-called Sacred Way, mm -hmm. the most important street in ancient Rome. And uh, it has been a hub for us. Uh, uh, the possibility of envisioning the 8th century landscape in that spot pushed us forward uh, to reconsider the stratigraphical sequences, that is the previous excavation in Rome, and uh, all around the site we have been excavating, we had been able to identify the same discontinuity in the same period all around the area of the Roman Forum. Comparing the sites dating to the middle of the 8th century BCE with the memory of the ancient, there's a complete overlay between the archaeological features and the places that the Romans believed had been created at the middle of the 8th century BCE. So to make a long story short, in some sense, the, um, the mythical part of the story is, of course, mythical. But they were right in assuming what had been created at the middle of the 8th century BCE in terms of landmarks, in terms of real places and real buildings. So the, the discontinuity that we see on the Palatine, uh, it reflects, you think, new settlers or a new organization of an existing settlement? 
This discontinuity represents, I think, a new organization of the settlement because we think mm -hmm. of the Palatine in terms of one small settlement. The Palatine was not a village in itself. Since a very early mm -hmm. age, that is the late part of the so-called Bronze Age, that is the second half of the second millennium BCE, the Palatine has always been a part of a wider settlement at the very beginning, spanning from the Capitol Hill that is on one side of the Roman Forum to the Palatine itself. And then slowly, we had archaeological evidence of the uh, creation of a very wide settlement already during the 9th century BCE, as large as the historical city, that is nearly 150 hectares. The famous seven hills of Rome had been occupied since at least the beginning of the 9th century BCE. And the extension of this of such a wide settlement was kept as it was during the 8th century BCE. So the emergence, the creation of these new places uh, has to be envisioned within the framework of an earlier settlement as large as the following one. So you have a discontinuity, but not in terms of uh, immigrants coming, uh, yeah. new culture superimposed to a previous one, but in terms of different layouts and different locations for different functions within the same settlement. Hmm. Interesting. And so, uh, how was, from what we can tell from the evidence, how was this new settlement laid out? You know, what, what were the features that distinguished it from the previous settlement? Oh, this is very clear from the excavation. Um, directly on the surface of the bedrock, on this narrow stretch, on the northern slope of the hill, we identified four or five groups, small groups of huts. So people uh, were living in small groups within this huge settlement. You have to imagine something like wards of a wider settlement. All of a sudden, all these structures have been dismantled, covered by a field, and on top of this new field, you have the creation of this wall, and on the other side of this fortification wall, you have a group of new buildings, such as a house, a very, a very relevant building, even though it was made of clay and straw with wooden poles, but nonetheless, it was larger than 80 square meters, and a minor sanctuary, and what is more relevant, a major sanctuary, which was the sanctuary dedicated to the goddess Vesta, that is the fireplace of the city, which can be dated once again at the middle of the 8th century BCE. At the same time, you have the first flooring of the, uh, uh, at the foot, uh, in, on the capital slope in front of the area we have been excavating, uh, there was the place for the political assembly in Rome, and the first mm -hmm. floor of this place was created at the middle of the 8th century BCE, and the Roman Forum as well was created mm -hmm. towards the end of the same century. So this new layout is not just new, 
it is also related to political function or mm -hmm. sacred places related to a political structure. And this is the reason why tend to relate this discontinuity to a political event rather than mm -hmm. a different kind of changing. So this period saw these villages, these settlements around the Palatine becoming a city, a city with a political center, um, with cult centers, um, with, with a forum, um, you know, a, a real heart for a community. And do, do we think then that it was um, a king or, you know, some sort of leader who was uh, arranging all of this, this new unity, uh, this new city? Um, or just, uh, what can we tell about the political organization of this new Rome of the 8th century BC? <laughs> this is a very good question. Uh, uh, first of all, I have to say, we can just make assumption about this, mm -hmm. this kind of problem. Uh, I would like to say also that we have to think uh, not of a group of different villages, by of one large unified settlement managed mm -hmm. by a number of aristocratic families, you have to imagine something like what we call a peer society, where mm -hmm. the aristocratic families were ruling all together without an emerging one, but without a political center. So what we know about the lead resources is that Rome was run by one man, one magistrate, a lifelong magistrate, uh, who the ancient sources define king with the Latin word mm -hmm. rex. So what we think at the moment, what the scholars, not, not, not just me, of course, what the scholars mm -hmm. think at the moment is that this aristocratic organization had been kept but uh, subdued to a new political form of uh, what we call a centralized power. That is, there is an authority stronger than each other single family. Hmm. Right, so yeah, like you said, that that's the true first king, so to speak. You know, as we think of it in the stories, and you mentioned how. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. Yeah, go. Sorry, sorry. I was just thinking about what you were saying. No, 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 no worries. Um, and you you mentioned earlier that once this new the new Rome was established, um, it became the Rome that we know, the familiar ancient Rome that lasted in some cases for a thousand years um, on the same layout. Um, so, you know, the, the Via Sacra, you know, the, the Forum itself, uh, the Comitium all remained in the same places. And uh, I remember reading about uh, a very interesting survival and maybe reconstruction uh, called uh, the, the Casa Romuli, the, the, the Hut of Romulus or the House of Romulus. And it was on a different part of the Palatine. I think it was on the, the opposite slope. Um, but it was this, uh, this very primitive, a basic wooden hut um, that was rebuilt again and again um, throughout imperial history as sort of a, a, a way of remembering uh, Rome's origins. Um, you know, what do we know about this, this hut of Romulus, um, this kind of reconstruction of a primitive uh, dwelling, and uh, how, why it might have been rebuilt so many times? First of all, we know that something called the hut of Romulus was a real building, because we know a number of events related to this hut. We also know that this hut was located in a very precise spot 
which can be identified today uh, thanks to the indication in the lit resources because the indication is very accurate. This hut was located on top of a monumental staircase leading from the, from the valley south of the hill to the top of the hill. And this staircase has been uh, identified in, in a real monument. Mm -hmm. So, uh, in theory, we know the precise place where the Romans believed that the hut of Romulus was. On that spot, Sapienza University, when I was still a student, carried on for many, many years a wide excavation and there, keeping the memory of the ancient on one side and the archaeology on the other side, of course, on that spot, uh, the archaeologists had the chance of reading the history impressed in the earth. And the history on that side of the Palatine was more or less similar of the one we saw on the northern slope. Mm -hmm. That is that the remains of huts related to the settlement of the Iron Age are dismantled around the middle of the 8th century BCE. On the north side, we had a fortification wall, the house and the sanctuary of Vesta. On the south side, we have a hut with an altar in front and a pit in front of the hut. This layout altar, pit, and hut had been, had been kept there as they were for at least two centuries, from the middle of the 8th century BCE until the end of the 6th. Since the beginning of the 5th century onwards, they reshaped the place, creating a sacred spot with a precinct, a later altar placed exactly on top of the original pit, with possibly a new hut, a fake hut, of course, <laughs> in front of this altar. And this place is exactly on top of this staircase where the Romans believed that the, uh, the first king had lived. The house, mm -hmm. the, the hut of Romulus was the hut where uh, Romulus and Remus were uh, lived when they were kids, according to the legend. But apart from the legend, the Roman thought that that was a very relevant landmark because Rome was born there. Because the foundation of Rome, when you hear no, uh, Rome was founded, uh, according, to the legend, according to the legend, the foundation of Rome was the celebration of a rite. And the rite was digging a pit, fill this pit with seeds and, and other things, then uh, create an altar on top of this field, lit a fire on top of this altar, pronounce the name of the city, and at that time, at that time the city was born. Hmm. And they believed in this story. And it was so effective that the first emperor, Octavian Augustus, decided to live exactly in front of this altar and in front of the possible fake hut of Romulus. So, apart, one, apart from what we may think in historical terms, they used this place as location of memories to be used in the political struggle. Because this, mm -hmm. this was their culture. It was more than a belief. 
It's, it's fascinating that it lasted so long that you even, you know, 700 years, more than 700 years after the supposed foundation well, of Rome, may, Octavian more, is still living there. More than 700 years because uh, one of the most important literary um, one of the most important information we have from literary sources is the so-called catalog. It's a list of the Roman monuments located here and there in the city. And this is a very mm -hmm. late text because it has been created towards the end of the 4th century AD and the beginning of the 5th, so at the very end of the Roman mm -hmm. history. And this catalog mentions the house of Romulus, and the cave hmm. where they believed Romulus and Remus had been milked by the she-wolf is the Lupercal. So they were mm -hmm. real monuments listed in an official document stating which monument were present in the different wards of Rome. Huh. So even more than a thousand years after the hut was, exactly. or something like the hut, the, the exactly. fake hut was still there. Was still there. Wow. Incredible. You know, and thinking about how uh, Octavian Augustus uh, decided to build or to buy a house, you know, nearby, you know, for, for many centuries, of course, the Palatine was the favored residence of the Roman elite, where aristocrats lived beside the Forum. Um, you mentioned before how even on the north side of the hill, there were early houses found, early aristocratic houses. Um, how much do we know about these senatorial mansions on the Palatine uh, before the emperors show up and uh, claim almost the entire hill for their palace? Once again, we know quite a lot. Uh, we have to think, of course, in archaeological terms, the Palatine is nearly entirely covered by the later imperial buildings. Because mm -hmm. we use the word palace. And this word is the translation of the name of the hill, because mm -hmm. the Latin word palatium does not mean palace, but means palatine. So we use the word palatine, the Latin word palatine, to indicate the palace. Mm -hmm. the, in archaeological terms, this means that you may have more information just on the limits of the hills, the area that had not been covered by the later imperial building. In these stretches at the limit of the hill, we know now a number of aristocratic houses dating between the second century, end of the third, and the end of the first century BCE, that is the uh, so-called the late Republican phase, where the power of the Senate was at its peak. And mm -hmm. they were luxury houses. We know a lot about the decorations, the shape, the plan. We really know. And in many cases, we can also identify the owners of this building thanks to the lead resources, because we know that someone lived there and it was the neighbor of someone else, and the wife of this neighbor was the neighbor of someone else, and so forth. So we can, mm -hmm. it's like a jigsaw puzzle of, of people. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you know, know the whole neighborhood, just find the addresses. In, in right. Here and there we can. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. Um, I remember for, for years I've wanted to go down to the, uh, I think it's the House of the Griffins um, under the Palatine, one of these earlier houses, uh, but uh, and I never was there at the right time. <laughs> uh, so, so, so moving on to the actual palaces, uh, to the, the, the first imperial palace, the House of Octavian Augustus, um, how much do we know about this structure? I know it was much more modest than the later palaces would become. 
Well, in some sense, yes. In some sense, no. Uh, the thing is that Octavian was, in some sense, embedded in the Palatine because he was born on the Palatine. His father mm -hmm. had a house on the northwest corner of the hill, and he was born there. After the killing of Caesars, after the war and the Battle of Philippi, Octavian came back to Rome, and you have to imagine a very harsh period of political struggles. Many senators died, killed in the battle uh, in Greece. So Octavian on the one hand and Mark Antony on the other hand became the owners of the estates of these worn and killed people. So for the first time, Octavian did not buy a house, but he was the master of a, of a house of a killed man. And, this, and he chose that house because that house was the one in front of the house of Romulus. Then he decided to present himself as the neighbor of the founder. If you think about time, uh, this happened in year 42, after the, the revenge. They killed the killers of Caesar, in some sense. Octavian was 20, and he was right in the middle of a struggle with Mark Antony. The future was totally uncertain. Nonetheless, even though he was the younger of the two opponents, he had a clear political idea of linking himself to the founder. I think this is really, really interesting in political and in also in human terms, in some sense. Mm -hmm. And he won. He succeeded in doing right. this. And so he started living in a typical Roman house with a natrium, a peristyle, painted walls, and we know this house. When he was living in this house, he decided to upgrade this building, and in some sense, he doubled the house. He had a atrium and a peristyle. He built a second peristyle. He, a lot, there was a very strong upgrading. During the upgrading of this house, a lightning struck the building. And once again, he was very clever in declaring that that was the sign of mm -hmm. a god Apollo, who was claiming to live in that place. And a god deserved a better house. So he backfilled this second enlarged house, and on top of this back... And this is the reason why we have the wonderful paintings now, because Octavian himself decided to leave that house, and in some sense, he preserved his own house for us now. And over this backfield, he created the first palace, which was, by the way, a huge sanctuary with a very small residential area reserved for himself. <laughs> this sanctuary was, of course, composed by one temple and a large terrace moving from the Palatine towards the Aventine. So he was projecting the area of this house far beyond the limit of the natural cliff. So he created a huge substruction, five stories tall, to support this sanctuary palace. And this building, this, this huge basement, 
was the core of the first bureaucracy of the empire. So this is the beginning of the imperial palace. After him, well, the first emperor, Tiberius, expanded the palace on one side of the hill, Nero extending the palace on the other side of the hill, and just later on, at the end of the first century AD, the last of the Flavian emperors, Domitians, created the palace represented by the ruins we can see today when we visit the hill. Yeah, I know every time I've been on the Palatine, uh, I've been uh, somewhat confused, actually, by the, the, the kind of the maze of walls and the different layers that are present. And, um, you know, just to focus on, on Nero for a moment, I know that Nero built, I guess, two palaces, uh, at least that connected to part of the Palatine, the, the Domus Transitoria and then later the famous Domus Aurea. Um, what traces survive of those palaces on the hill itself? The palaces of Nero uh, represent one of the most intriguing problems in Roman topography. This is a very interesting question. Once again, uh, literary sources first, and then monuments in archaeology. We know from the literary sources that Nero uh, had uh, lived somewhere on the Palatine Hill, Augustus was born on the Palatine. Nero was born in, um, on the hill in front, uh, which was called the Velia Hill, which is more or less the, the place where now you can see the ruins of the Temple of Venus in Rome. That mm-hmm. uh, there was the house of his father. And then he had a Domus Transitoria which has not to be located on the Palatine, because during the 64 AD fire, the historian says that they were both burning, the house on the Palatine and the Domus Transitoria, so they have to be Uh, different houses. mm -hmm. Uh, We don't know exactly where it was. Somebody thinks that the remains dating back to the Neronian age on the Palatine can be attributed to the Domus Transitoria. This is the, not the safest part of the reconstruction. But this is typical mm-hmm. scientific struggle. It's not very interesting. Right, right. What we know for certain is that after year 64, Nero reshaped Rome. The ancient sacred way, uh, when you go to the Palatine and the Roman Forum, you suddenly identify the second way is the only street and is bending like this because it was a very ancient street following the natural contour of the hill. That street with the remaining houses all around were backfilled with the debris of the fire and Nero created a new avenue 30 meters wide aligned with the constellation was in the sky when he was born, and on the other side, uh-huh. it was aligned with the entrance to the palace, which was located more hmm. or less where the Temple of Venus in Rome was. And from hmm. that hub, you had the access to the Palatine Hill when he created not a very large house uh, attached to the previous house created by Augustus, then you reached the Salian Hill, where he had a temple with gardens dedicated to the Emperor Claudius. 
the valley where the Colosseum will uh, later be built, where there was an artificial lake, and far off the, the Esquiline, where created the pavilion called now the Golden House, which can, see, mm. where, which can still be visited today. So a very huge area of the city, more than 30 hectares wide. The Roman historians oh, wow. write that uh, by that time people were writing on the wall of Rome, leave Rome because now the city is, has been turned into one house. <laughs> it was a political hazard of writing things like that. Right, Rome. right, yeah. Oh, wow. Hey, incredible. Yeah, and even though the part you can still visit, of course, is impressive enough. That was just a small fragment of the, of the entire whole. Um, uh, so returning to the Palatine itself, you mentioned how uh, what we see today is built by Domitian almost entirely, or much of it was. Um, how much do we know, both from literary sources um, and from the remains, about how that palace was laid out? Once again, we know a lot. We know really a lot, because the, uh, the plan of the palace is entirely, more or less entirely visible, all preserved. It was a huge building, mm -hmm. once again uh, uh, sustained by the huge substructures along the south side of the Palatine. To be clear, that is the side where the Imperial Palace was attached to the Circus Maximus. It was easy for the Emperor to look at the tournaments in the Circus standing in, mm -hmm. at home, in some sense. And uh, it was divided in three parts mainly a public area with the hall where the throne was and banqueting halls, a private park with private gardens, the bedroom of the emperors, private apartments and places like this. And a third huge part, it was a huge garden shaped as a circus with minor attachments such as bath complexes and things like this. But at the same time, when Domitian created this huge building, the house of Augustus was already in place, and the, and the buildings created by Tiberius were already in place. So this was the missing corner, not yet occupied mm. by the imperial houses, which was the last chapter of a long history, which joined all the previous already existing parts, and the Palatine became a palace. But we know a lot. We know a lot about the decoration. Something are now dispersed in different museums all around the world, but some fragments can still be seen there. And we have a precise idea of the architecture of this building, also thanks to the fact that it was a very famous building, and it has been represented on coins, for example. So mm. we know how it looked like from the foundation to the floor in some sections. And this palace was used for centuries. Um, emperors, you know, adding on bits and pieces, um, extending it in a couple cases. Um, I've always wondered um, how much we know about what happened to the palace after the emperors were gone. Um, you know, who, who used it? Um, how did it fall into ruin? If we know that process, this is uh, right the opposite side of the line. Uh, we started from the foundation, and now we are reaching right. the end. And um, now, once again, we know quite a lot, but this time, thanks to the lead resources mostly, because the excavation carried on on the Palatine 
in some sense since the Renaissance onwards and with scientific methods since the 19th century onwards, erased nearly entirely mm. the later stratigraphical sequence on the hill. So we have just the skeletons of a body which has been uh, freed by the flesh and the muscles and whatever else. Mm-hmm. And uh, the em- during the last centuries of the Roman Empire, the emperors did not leave in Rome anymore. Constantine was uh, based on in, in Turkey, no? in, mm-hmm. uh, in Constantinopolis. He created a new capital and uh, very rarely the emperors were staying for a long time in Rome. But nonetheless, the palace had to be uh, managed, maintained, preserved. Uh, the head of the empire was in the palace in terms of bureaucracy, officers, archives, documents, and things like that. And anyways, was the palace of the Roman emperor. And uh, after the end of the empire, the bureaucracy stayed there for a long time. I'm not that sure, but I think that the last mention of the officers uh, managing the palace can be dated in the early Middle Ages. And one of the early popes was the son of the last officer managing the palace. Hmm. And uh, very, very late, that is at least after the 7th century AD, the palace began to be abandoned, slowly collapsing, being dismantled, used as a place where you can find... uh, bricks and building materials of other kinds. And then later on, it was transformed in a, in a totally different reality, such as uh, a cloister was located there. Mm-hmm. A part of the hill was occupied by the Farnese family, and where they established the Farnese garden, we can still see now. So ancient Rome was dead, but his body was still there. And slowly, slowly, it has been transformed by different persons and different mm-hmm. uses. Hmm. You know, one thing that has always fascinated me about the Palatine Hill, besides this continuity, this history that lasts, you know, two millennia and more, is that there are still so many mysteries about the hill's archaeology. And I remember um, when I was still in college uh, about 15 years ago, uh, there was a, a, a cave discovered uh, on one slope of the Palatine that they put an underground probe down and found this cave with a lovely uh, mosaic ceiling. Um, and some people thought this was the Lupercal, uh, the cave where Remus and Remus um, were fed by the she-wolf. And it just became, I think, controversial uh, later on. Um, what do we know about this cave in particular and about other kind of uh, undiscovered aspects of the Palatine? As for this cave, we do not know very much in this case because uh, nobody entered this place. <laughs> it has been seen during oh. a drill, thanks to a camera sent in this. They were drilling to verify mm-hmm. the, uh, the stability of the, of the rocky cliff of the hill in that point. And they, sudden, they all of a sudden had a void. They inserted a camera and had a photograph of this wonderful place. It's a round chamber mm-hmm. with mosaics and an eagle on top of the, uh, mm-hmm. of the vault. And uh, so this is the, the evidence, let's say, we have. On the other hand, we know that 
on close to the staircase leading to the house of Romulus was this sanctuary. The sanctuary was located in a cave. The Romans believed that the origin of this sacred place was much earlier than Rome itself. According to the legend that this sanctuary was founded by the Greek people uh, escaping from Greece before Aeneas came to Rome. So it's a very remote time. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, they kept that place as a sacred place, first of all, because it was a part of their culture. Second, because the Roman foundation legend was attached to that cave. And it has to be a real place because we know of statues, honorary statues located within the Lupercal, and we know of people living beneath the Lupercal. So, once again, we have the mention of something we have to envision as a real place. We do not know, we, the indication in the lit resources are not so precise, are not as precise as the one we have for the heart of Romulus. So this cave mm. should be around the corner of the hill. But assuming the staircase as a line, the cave might be on one side or the other. It is impossible to state this location so precisely according just to the information we have by the lead resources. Uh, this cave is a candidate. It's a candidate. The eagle is an imperial sign. It's an official visual element. And uh, not to say that were this round chamber really a part of the Lupercal, this round chamber is located exactly underneath the house of Octavian I and of Augustus later. So, it's not an evidence, of course, but assuming a location of the Lupercal on that point, the relation between the origin of Rome and the propaganda of Augustus mm -hmm. would be, in some sense, stronger. But we are digging exactly above this round chamber at the moment, and we are confident sooner or later we will reach the bottom we will see which kind of feature this could be. Oh, yeah, I look forward to hearing about it. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. So uh, what other work is going on now on the Palatine? Um, where are you digging, and uh, what do you hope to discover in the coming years? As for the first question, a number of very, very excellent research teams are working on the Palatine. Uh, beginning with the administration of the archaeological park itself, they are really, really doing mm -hmm. a great job in uh, investigating, restorating, and enhancing that kind of heritage. We know much more thanks to the restoration and the, the ongoing openings to the public of areas of the Imperial Palace previously closed to the public. Then there are uh, Italian or foreign groups working there, either on top or at the bottom of the hill. And we are one of these groups working on the south side. Once we dug more or less everything in the area on the north side, we reached the bedrock more or less everywhere. We moved to the south side, first for the reason that the lower part are the most easy to be understood because they are outside the limit of the Imperial Palace. So they are also preserved in a better way. 
because they're not being crossed by the later foundations, and because there was the house of Octavian and Augustus, which uh, was really a, an uncharted monument until a few years ago, because the excavation were carried there during the 50s and the 70s of the last century. There was not a proper addition of the building. A few years ago, the, uh, the excavation notes had been published, but we really did not know very precisely the history of the building. Now we know the history I told you a few moments mm -hmm. earlier. The small house, the larger house, the backfield and the upper house is uh, what we realized just a few years ago. And uh, wow. there's still much more to be defined in terms of architectural um, assessment of this building. And on the other hand, we do not know this house of Augustus is located in between the Domitian Imperial Palace, which is the safe part of the story, and mm -hmm. an area previously excavated, but still unpublished. So we are trying to understand, once again, the layout of the different landscapes which have been created in that area, so to have uh, evidence for the history of the place, and the history of the places is the history of the city. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's wonderful that even in the very heart of Rome, in the heart of the Roman world, there's still so much to discover. That you know we we you know we know the basic story, but there's still so much that you know every year reveals about uh, the Palatine. And so uh, to close, I wanted to ask if you or if you had any advice for people visiting the Palatine, uh, coming to Rome as tourists or you know uh, seeing it you know, uh, more closely for the first time, about the best way to get the most out of uh, a visit to the Palatine Hill. First of all, take your time. Don't <laughs> you don't need to be hurry. You have to walk in the place, feel the place, try to realize the connection between one spot and the other. This is the, the, the best way of creating a mental map of the place which you can plot the ancient layout over. This is the first thing. Walk in the place, feel the place, take your time and enjoy. Meanwhile, you have to try to learn something about the ruins you see. And my suggestion is to read the Atlas of Ancient Rome, of course, we published a few years mm -hmm. ago, which is, uh, apart from joking, the Atlas of Ancient Rome is the only book about the only city in the world where the history of the city is told through the changing landscape of the city itself. And uh, you have to read something before perceiving the ancient reality hidden here and there in the Palatine places. Because it is not self-explaining. This is also maybe this, this is maybe the most difficult part of a site visit mm -hmm. of the Palatine. You need a translation, you need an explanation. And apart from that, is uh, I think the most beautiful place in the world. <laughs> well, uh, thank you so much, Professor Carafa. This has been a wonderful discussion, and uh, I've learned quite a bit about the Palatine and about the center of Rome, and I hope that my listeners have as well. Um, 
So thank you once again for your time. Thank you. And thank you for asking me. Oh, of course. Um, and to everyone listening, uh, thanks for tuning in.